0: It's a longer passage this morning, so I suggest you remain seated, but turn with me to Second Kings chapter 5. <clears throat> Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel and the king of Syria said, Go now. And I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? And stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God And wave his hand over the place and cure the leper Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus Better than all the waters of Israel Could I not wash in them and be clean So he turned and went away in a rage But his servants came near and said to him My father is it a great word the prophet has spoken to you Will you not do it? Has he actually said, Do you wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Raman, when I bow myself in the house of the Raman, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi the servant of Elisha the man of God said See my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought and as the Lord lives I will run after him and get something from him So Gehazi followed Naaman and when Naaman saw someone running after him he got down from the chariot to meet him and said Is all well and he said All is well My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing. And he laid them on two of his servants and carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he said to them, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, "Where have you been, Gehazi?" And he said, "Your servant went nowhere." But he said to him, "Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you?" Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. The word of the Lord.
1: For those of you who are able to see, apparently one of the AC things fell, because Zach was messing around. So today, we are, uh, as we're making our way through the Elijah narrative, uh, we're focusing on uh, the notion of grace, because the story before us is a story about how God's grace unfolds uh, through a number of different reactions to that grace. Grace is something that's pretty important to us as part of the Reformation, is it not? We speak of sola gratia. That we are saved by grace alone. Well, what is grace? We often define grace as unmerited favor, God's kindness to us that we don't actually uh, deserve, that we haven't warranted in any way. But being able to define grace is not necessarily really um, having a good grasp of grace. Grace can be hard to see, grace can be hard to understand, and grace can be very difficult. To receive and so we're going to explore five different acts that happen in our passages different people respond in different ways at different moments to God's grace being extended in the midst of that and as we do that we're also going to talk a little bit about the story of Catherine Butler that's kind of a modern day demonstration of some of the things that are playing out in our story Catherine Butler uh, is an accomplished critical care surgeon, or at least she was at the beginning of our story. She had uh, graduated from elite schools and gone into a, a good residency and now is a trauma surgeon. Right? One of these people that you have the, uh, the shows like ER, or Grey's Anatomy, right? dramatized, uh, high-paced. You know, When lots of cases come in, it can be very difficult. Quick decisions have to be made. And as that critical care surgeon, she had one night in particular that was uh, decisive for her. She looks back on it as a turning point in what she experienced, and it's a little bit of a hard story, and sometimes I struggle with how hard a story we engage in because of the mixed ages that we have here, but I'll also point out that what we're going to engage is no more difficult than what's actually in the scripture passage that we're reading, and so I'll help you to see that as we proceed. But Catherine's story on this night begins with her working on a trauma case. Uh, a couple had come into the ER. They were a uh, 22 year old husband and wife. They had, uh, someone had broken into their home and they had been brutalized with a baseball bat. And she, the mother had expired. She was working to save the husband, but his brain was hemorrhaging at too great a rate. And he, uh, he passed as well. And they, she was trying so hard because she knew that a four-year-old that was untouched was found in the house. But there was nothing more she could do, so she turned and went to the next case, which was a 15-year-old gunshot victim. He had been shot in the chest, and she opened up his chest and began to feel around in the chest and around his still heart and gasped when she felt the size of the hole that had been torn in his aorta from the bullet and knew immediately that there was nothing that could be done for that kind of wound. So she turned around from that to the next case, which was another 15-year-old shooting victim, son of a boy that had been shot in the head. And again, there was nothing that could be done to save that child. And the place that all of this took Catherine was, what is the point? What are we doing? You know, is there something that lies behind this, or is this just uh, the whim of the chaos of life, who lives and who dies? To a place of wrestling with, with big and significant questions. And the question I'd like to pose to you just as we start out is, is it possible that in the midst of those traumas, uh, Catherine experienced God's grace? Now, by that, I do not mean necessarily that God had foreordained that those people all die in that way simply for the benefit of Catherine. But I do mean that if God, by permission, allows things to happen in a broken way in a broken world, Can he also show up in the midst of those very broken circumstances and weave a story of resurrection? Can he weave a story of life in the midst of that? And where do we see grace? If you just look at that night from a very human perspective, it's very difficult to see grace. It's very difficult even in the beginning of our story to see grace. In fact, the author hints that grace is at work in ways that we wouldn't even expect. So we need to consider Act 1 in our story. And act one is an act of grace can be hard to see. If we're not looking for it, and even perhaps if we are, it can be difficult to recognize when it happens. If you'll notice, uh, Naaman is introduced as a great general. He holds uh, the favor of the king, says he is a man of great valor. He's won great victories for Syria. He's the decorated general that would be at any banquet thrown uh, by the king. But interestingly, look also at the, toward the end of verse 1, where it states that Naaman's victory is the result of what? God granting him victory. God's kindness extended to him. Now this is rather peculiar because at this point in time, Israel and Syria are enemies, bitter enemies. Syria has the upper hand over Israel, What the author is saying is that, you know, Naaman's success, which has come at the expense of Israel, right? Naaman's success means deaths in Israel. This is by the hand of God. He's extending grace. He's working a story that is bigger than the Israeli-Syrian conflict at this time. And it happens. The story moves forward by Naaman receiving a certain degree of success. That's not a place that you would expect to see grace or a way you would expect to see it come forward. Now, Naaman, everything is great in Naaman's life until he gets that prognosis, right? And it says in one sentence, Naaman was a leper. So he's afflicted. He's now considered to be um, cursed. The gods have looked down on him. They've not protected him from this affliction. He looks towards, uh, toward a terrible quality of life and an early death and now won't be, you know, he goes from being the man at the party where people whisper, there's Naaman the general, let's go get our picture taken with him, to there's Naaman the leper, keep your distance, right, he's not safe to be around. His world is turned upside down, and yet even in this upside down turning of his world, the only way that Naaman actually comes to meet Yahweh is through his leprosy. So again, we see grace in a place that we would not expect it in this first act, we see grace in another place. We would not expect it, expect it which is through a little slave girl. right? Taken into custody on a Syrian raid in Israelite villages. Um, Taken to be a domestic slave to Naaman's wife. And you would think there would be a little bit of bitterness there. That when she hears that Naaman has less leprosy, she might say, I'm going to go eat a cake and light a candle and celebrate that Naaman has leprosy. He's stolen me from his home. But instead... She goes to her master, uh, Naaman's wife, and says, you know, if only there was a way for Naaman to get to Samaria, where in Israel there's a prophet who's known to heal these sorts of things. Instead of cursing, she blesses. She still believes, even in the midst of her condition, that Yahweh is the God who grants real power to the prophets. A remarkable start to the story. Three places where you'd say, there's no grace right, in somebody beating Israel. There's no grace in somebody getting leprosy. There's no grace in someone being stolen from their home and being made a slave girl. And grace is pouring out of the story already. Right? Opportunity for God to write a new story in the midst of these acts of grace that are hard to see. Now This leads us to Act 2. In Act 2, the notion is if grace is stressful, then you misunderstand it. Now, how do we see this? Uh, the Naaman goes to his king. He's got to get permission to go to meet this prophet. And the king not only, right, we already know that Naaman stands in favor with the king. So the king not only grants permission, he says, I'm going to send you with a bunch of money. And I'm going to send you with a letter that recommends you uh, from me uh, to the king of Israel so that he'll help you out and do what needs to be done. And so uh, you see a little bit of that letter in chapter 5, verse 6. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. No big deal. King of Israel, uh, not winning against me, king of Syria. I have a little problem. Here's Naaman, my servant. He has leprosy. Please take care of it. I didn't think that's a pretty big request. I think, what would the king of Israel do? How should he think about this? Is this opportunity for God's grace? Well, the king of Israel certainly doesn't see it that way. He freaks out. If you look at verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that the man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking quarrel with me. The king of Israel, undone by the request, presumes that it's simply a pretense for war. When he sends Naaman back with leprosy and said, I'm sorry, I can't cure your man, the king of Syria will say, well, okay, then we're coming to go to war against you again. You would hope, though, that the king of Israel, the king of God's chosen people, might instead say, well, perhaps this is opportunity for grace. You know, it's not in my power to heal But it's in God's power to heal. And the least I can do is send you to Elisha, who is God's prophet. And perhaps something can be done. You see, the problem with the king of Israel is there's this opportunity that grace could work that is presented to him. But he concludes, he assumes that he is responsible to make the grace happen. He's responsible right, to actually manufacture the act of grace. He's not really paying attention to who is the actor of grace, the person behind the grace. We're going to find as we continue to move forward that that's a decisive element between the people who understand and respond appropriately to God's grace and those who don't. There are those who are simply concerned with the act of grace, but there are those who understand that the act of grace is something that is secondary to meeting the actor of grace. And here the king has no expectation, no faith that the actor of grace might do something. He assumes that the act is on him, and it stresses him out significantly. Now, some of you know this stress in one of two ways. The first way is when you think that you are responsible for grace transforming your own heart. Right? You say, yes, of course, I'm justified by grace. God has saved me, and now I am responsible to make myself holy. So you come up with rules, rules, you come up with, uh, you often whip yourself in the back, you know, proverbial, you know uh, metaphorically speaking, because you punish yourself and you think, I'm not as holy as I should be, I will make myself more holy. And you aspire to do something that's not actually in your power to do. Now listen, I'm not, discipline is important. And discipline is something that you're called to. But your discipline must begin with the actor of Grace must begin as Augustine would begin by saying god give what you command because i'm not able to manufacture what you command i'm lifeless and my stone of heart must be made stone of flesh let me labor but let me labor out of the power of your spirit that i might be transformed and that's liberating right to assume that you manufacture the grace that is necessary to make yourself more holy is something that will crush anyone right again You're focusing on the act of grace that you would make rather than the actor of grace. Now the other way that you may be exhausted or stressful is not so much that you're worried about making yourself holy but if you're someone who is prone to leap into situations that are desperate and need help right? and you want to sacrifice on behalf of those situations you may do this professionally. People who go into social services public services, ministry things of that nature often have this bent. And something comes to the to the four that is tragic or needs help or some issue of suffering and we do you you launch in and you pour yourself into it right you lay everything down and make all kinds of sacrifices why it's very stressful because you think you're responsible for creating the grace that's necessary to change that situation and you can't create the grace necessary to change that situation this is one of the hardest lessons that i had to learn in ministry and i It's interesting. I don't know very many. I can't think of a pastor I know who didn't learn this the hard way. When you go into ministry, you think, oh, yes, I'm going to be this tool of God that affects all of this change. And I'm going to affect all of this this grace. And it's very stressful because I'm not paying attention to the actor. I'm paying attention to the act, and I want to take part of the credit for the act. Well, eventually, you get buried by that because you can't do anything of what you aspire to. And you learn that the greatest thing you can do for anyone is to give them Jesus. Right? The best thing that I can do is point you to the Lord. Now I can't, I can't make you go there and I can't make you kneel and I can't make you confess. I can't make you repent. Right? But I can point you in the direction of where you need to go and that is the greatest thing that you can do for one another. That is a hard lesson to learn but once learned it's incredibly liberating. Right, I don't pretend anymore to be able to do something for people that I'm incapable of doing. Instead, I rely on the actor of grace rather than some act of grace that I think that I can manufacture in the life of someone. This is uh, the challenge uh, that we're continuing to try to unpack, is missing the actor for the act of grace. And this leads us into act three, which is that grace is healing. Right? Grace, when it pours out, is, has a healing quality to it. Now we see this, of course, in the story of Naaman. If you look at chapter 5, verse 10, uh, Naaman finally gets to Elisha. Elijah won't come out and meet him face to face. That could be because uh, he's unclean, having leprosy. It could be because Elisha's trying to teach him a lesson. I don't really know, but he just he sends a messenger and gives him these instructions. Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean simple enough go dip in the Jordan River seven times and your leprosy will be gone you think Naaman having suffered from leprosy might say okay easy enough I'll go get busy about that instead he's not uh, he's not agreeable not only is he not agreeable he's angry right? here's somebody telling you how to be free from your leprosy and he's mad look at verse 11 but Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leopard. Mm-hmm. He says, Aren't there bigger rivers in Syria than there are in Israel? Why would I dip in the tiny Jordan? Naaman is frustrated right, because the act of grace isn't significant enough for him. Elijah should have stepped down in person. Doesn't he know who I am? And if this is such a great God, I expect a very impressive act of his power and glory. The prophet should wave his hands and should jump around and do a few somersaults, and then I should be miraculously healed on the spot here in front of everybody. What is this business about going to the river and being deaf seven times? right. Naaman is consumed with the act that's been prescribed and doesn't think at all, well, maybe if Elijah is representing truly a powerful God, it doesn't matter what the act is. It only matters that I meet the actor. The danger for us as well, the danger for Catherine. Catherine's our surgeon who, having gone through that very difficult night, uh, got off her shift in the morning and she felt bewildered. She got in her car and drove 100 miles. And she stopped on a bridge over a river and got out and was looking at the morning sun on the river. And she got out, she felt, to meet God. Which is kind of interesting because Catherine did not grow up in a particularly Christian home. They did not uh, read the Bible in her home. They did not pray in her home. They seldom went to church. But she found herself questioning really life and existence. And she said, okay, you know, God, I'm ready for you to meet me here. And she tried to pray, but she said no words would come. And so there on the bridge, she decided, okay, I'm agnostic. I gave God a chance to meet me on this bridge, and he has chosen not to. So I don't believe that he exists. And Catherine, like Naaman, was concerned about the act, that God must show up in a certain way and demonstrate his power in a way that I will be persuaded, and all my fears and doubts will be put away, and I might move forward. Now both are missing the actor for the act that they desire. In verse 13 of chapter 5, the servants actually have to persuade Naaman to get into the Jordan. And 13 hard to translate. Most Old Testament scholars think the gist of the verse is more like this The servants go to Naaman and say, Would you do a great thing if Elijah commanded it? And Naaman presumes to say, Yeah, I'd do a great thing. Why not do a small thing then? Right? What have you got to lose? You already feel humiliated. You could lose your leprosy if he's right. You know, put down your pride and get in the river. And so Naaman concedes. He puts down his pride. He gets in the river. And in 514, you have this beautiful description of God's healing. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. He was clean. Naaman put aside his pride... He met the actor, right? rather than simply worrying about the act, and as a result, he was healed by grace. It, uh, as Catherine was deciding to be an agnostic and moving forward from that decision, an interesting thing happened to her husband, whose name is Scotty. Scotty lost his job, and Scotty was processing the suffering in his own life right, and decided that he was also going to reach out to God. Catherine had reached out to God in the midst of her suffering. Scotty now reached out to God. But Scotty went about it a different way. He started going to church, and he started reading his Bible, and he started having fellowship uh, with the people in the church, and he ultimately came to confess that God is God, that Jesus is true, and he bent the knee uh, to, um, to confess that Jesus is Lord. You see, Scotty, like Naaman, when he finally gets in the river, wasn't concerned necessarily about the act. God doesn't have to show up on my terms. I actually meet him when I show up on the terms he's given to me. And Catherine hasn't learned that yet. But this leads us to Act 4. And Act 4 is that grace invites relationship. Now, it would be actually rather hopeless if you think about it, that grace only brought healing. Right? Healing is important, but if you're simply healed of some condition in the present you're still going to die, and it doesn't mean that you have a relationship with God. So real grace not only brings healing, but it brings relationship. And we see this in a particularly beautiful way with Naaman. Because Naaman, you've got to love Naaman, right? After he's healed, he comes up out of the Jordan, he's clean, and what does he decide to do? I'm going to pay for this miracle, right? I'm in a really uncomfortable place here. I'm a very powerful man. I command the respect of thousands of soldiers. And I now owe my life to you, crazy little prophet who lives in Samaria. And so I'm going to give you a lot of money, and we'll call a square. Right? This debt will be settled. And Elijah says, no, you can't pay for grace. Grace is free. And it invites you into a relationship, uh, which Naaman understands. Because Naaman makes two profound requests. is one of the most fascinating, uh, pa- I mean, in some ways, passages in the Old Testament. Because um, request number one is beautiful, and request number two is just fascinating. Request number one is, um, can I have two carloads of dirt? Right? Naaman says, I want two loads of dirt to take back with me because I now believe. He confesses not only that Yahweh is stronger than his gods, he confesses that Yahweh is the only one and true God. He says, now I will sacrifice to Yahweh and worship him. He becomes a Yahweh worshiper. But he's, going, he's a Syrian. He's going back to Syria. So how do I do this? Now in the ancient world, a god is tied intimately to the land right, that he claims and that his people represent. So for and, uh, Naaman's mind to offer true sacrifices to Yahweh has to be done on Israelite earth. So he wants two loads to come back to worship appropriately. And then he makes an outlandish request. He says, I've got one more problem. I'm going back to my job, and I serve the king, and he'll go into the temple to worship our god, uh, Rimen. And he's old and feeble, and he leans on my arm, and when he kneels before Rimen, I will have to kneel with him. Would you please understand that this is not an act of worship? There's no worship in my heart that I'm just doing this job. And Elijah says, yeah, go in peace. God, in his mercy and compassion, meets Naaman where he is, having set aside his pride and said, yes, who is this actor who can heal me? Yes, this is the person that I now want to worship. God meets him and invites him into that relationship in a way that makes allowances for the difficult situation that he's in as a Syrian. God was inviting Catherine into a similar relationship as grace continued to be extended to her. At some point in time, Catherine moved from being a critical care surgeon to working in the ICU, and she eventually had a case in which um, a man named, she named Ron, uh, had come in. He had had a hip replacement, and after his hip replacement, he had gone into cardiac arrest, uh, and he had been without oxygen so long that his brain was severely uh, traumatized. They said, best case scenario, he might someday open his eyes and uh, follow an object in the room, but he'll never regain motor function of his body. Uh, he was essentially vegetative. And so time goes by, and Ron's family, his wife and his children, are coming regularly, and they're a Christian family, and they keep, uh, they keep coming and are encouraged. And they encourage the staff, and they give gifts and say thank you and say we're praying for Ron. And, and about a week or two into it, the wife says to Catherine, the surgeon, she says, you know, everything is going to be okay. God has told me that Ron's going to be fine. You know, he's a doctor, you say, okay. That's great. I'm, so, I'm glad God's told you that. And you turn around and roll your eyes to the staff. And the staff was actually talking about how do we help these people deal with the reality of the situation. Because what they're hoping for is never going to happen. But it was a week or so later that Ron, on command, moved his big toe. And it was another couple weeks after that that he turned his head. And it was a few weeks after that that he sat up in bed. And on and on over months, Ron regained all of his motor functions, which Catherine said in her own terms from a medical perspective was a complete miracle. There's no way to explain, given the damage to his brain, how any of that could have happened. Now, she's not even a believer yet. And she says, she starts to say, was this miracle given by God for me to consider? And she starts to wrestle that, but she's still caught up in the question, the tension that exists. Well, why does God bless some and others suffer so much? Why does Ron's family get this? and other families don't, right? Do you hear, though? She's still saying, I want God's act to be on my terms. If he can bless anybody, I want him to bless everybody, right? I want him to show up in the way I expect him to show up rather than to meet the actor. Naaman had received grace because he had met God on God's terms, right? Catherine has yet to do this. And this leads us to a place that really is danger, and this is Act 5, right? That grace cannot be taken for granted. If grace is uh, taken advantage of, or if grace is neglected, or if grace is made cheap, as Bonhoeffer would say, then realize the very real potential of that, a real result of that, is judgment. God does not dispense His grace lightly. And we see this, of course, with the story of Gehazi. Gehazi is Elijah's servant, and he's just watched you know, Naaman be healed and then Elijah turned down an enormous sum of money All right, we're talking about a huge amount of money and so Elijah says you know, working for Elijah is no easy task and I served the Lord and the laborer is worthy of his wages and so he goes and he chases down Naaman on the road and he's very clever he makes up a story to swindle Naaman Right? he says, oh you know what a couple of prophets just stopped by unexpectedly and now my master has changed his mind. Would you just give us a little bit, right? He asked for only a fraction of what was on the table before. And of course, Naaman says, of course, take this and take some more. And God, he takes it and he hides it. And, uh, and then he lies to Elijah when he's been asked uh, where he's been. And it plays out in verses 26 and 27 of chapter five. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. That may seem a particularly harsh punishment, but it is a reminder that grace cannot be taken for granted. And it may be an act of grace as well. You don't know the end of Gehazi's story. And maybe it was virtue by virtue of receiving leprosy that Gehazi kept, kept, stopped focusing on the act of grace that he wanted, right? For, for, in Gehazi's words, it says, God's going to be gracious to me. What does that look like? It looks like God lining my pockets. Right? Gehazi is nothing but Old Testament health and wealth. Right? He's, an old test, you know, he's a predecessor of the TV evangelist. I dispense a miracle... I get paid handsomely for it. And maybe the leprosy is the very grace that Gahazi needs to wake up and realize that even though he's been by the side of Elijah the whole time, he's never met the actor of grace. He's only looked for the act of grace that he thinks he deserves. And this is uh, the final lesson that Catherine learns. Uh, Not so much in judgment, but having thought about this miracle of Ron in the ICU. Catherine goes to church with Scotty, her husband, who's converted, and she begins to read her Bible and to pray. She begins to ask the actor to show up in the ways that he's given rather than to demand that his act of grace be exactly what she wants. And so she reads, she reads through the Gospels, and then she moves on to Romans, and she stops dead in her tracks when she gets to Romans 5, 1 through 8. And this is what She writes, The agony he suffered for our sake left me breathless. He too had endured heartache and had confronted the face of evil. And he bore such affliction, our affliction, for us. Romans 5, 1 through 8 revealed the awesome magnitude of God's love for us. He knows suffering. This, Catherine would bend the knee and confess with the tongue that Jesus is Lord. And she would look back and she would say, at all the situations, the horrible night in the ER, and standing on the bridge over the river, and she would say, you know, through it all, I see God's grace woven. I see him writing a story that I could not see earlier when I expected him to show up on my terms, rather than for me to meet uh, the actor of grace in the way that he prescribes. So what does this mean for you today and this week? Our story is interesting because it comes up in a particular way in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus shows up at the temple and he starts reading the Isaiah scroll. You know, the, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, uh, the, the poor will be blessed. And he says, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And how did the Jews respond? They're excited. Right? This is what we've been waiting for. We are ready. Let's go. We're ready to be blessed. We're ready to hear. We're ready to see. Jesus says, well, you know, let me just remind you of two other stories. One is the story of Elijah, right, who raises the son of the widow, who's not an Israelite, who's a foreigner, and provides for a widow uh, in famine in, while the entire land was in famine. And don't forget too the story of Naaman the Syrian, right? A foreigner who comes and is healed by Elijah, right? And an outsider is made an insider, while Gehazi the insider is made an outsider by his leprosy. And the Israelites are sharp; they get it. Jesus is saying, "You better think about your excitement and measure it. Right? Do you really understand what's happening?" Right? This, doesn't, this means that grace, what we're talking about, may be extended to the Gentiles beyond you. Now, the Jews were just ready to throw a party for Jesus. And you go through maybe those four verses to talk about those two stories. And what are they ready to do? It says they take him out, ready to stone him. They weren't a people who were interested in meeting the actor of grace who had shown up right in front of them in flesh and blood. They wanted the act of grace that they expected. That God was going to come and make everything good come true for them. The question for Israel as Jesus shows up is, do you want some act of grace that you perceive? You're either entitled to or is coming to you, or do you want to actually meet the actor of grace? And that's the question to you this morning. As you think about the reactions in this story, do you want to meet the actor of grace? Or are you simply looking for the act of grace that you think you deserve? Let's pray. God our Father, we praise you uh, because you are good and all good things come from your hand. You are gracious because you show kindness to us uh, when we do not merit it. Not only do we not merit it, but we merit destruction and yet you're kind and forgiving. Would you forgive us for the ways in which we expect you to act in certain ways, and we think grace should play out in a way that benefits us in a particular way? Would you forgive us for having hearts like Gehazi, that when we serve or when we suffer, we think we deserve to be paid for? Instead, would you help us to have hearts like Naaman, Who uh, surrendering his pride, uh, would would meet the actor of grace, uh, no matter what is prescribed. So would you please help us to meet you uh, by being faithful, uh, whether it, it be reading your word, or praying, or fellowshipping with the saints. In the midst of those acts, may we please meet the actor of grace. We ask that you would give what you command, that we might be what you desire. We ask that you would nourish us this morning. We thank you for the elements of the table and pray that you would build us up in them uh, for
0: it is grace that gives us life. Thank you. Amen.